How's it going, everyone? This is Joe from The Muster Room. Before you dive into this episode, we have a quick update for you. We're proud to announce that we're officially teaming up with Law Enforcement Officers Weekend, a nationally recognized 501c3 nonprofit whose mission hits home with all of us here at The Muster Room. This integration will help us create better content for you while also helping line-of-duty families and injured officers across the country. Just by listening to this episode, you're helping contribute to our ongoing mission to help the members of the law enforcement community. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Muster Room. I'm Detective Joseph Ryder and with me is police officer Austin Glickman and retired detective Eric Potts. Together, we have over 50 years of experience as first responders and law enforcement officers. In this podcast, we break down the life-altering incidents with the first responders and veterans that experience them and discuss the toll these incidents have in the days, weeks, and years afterward. Before we begin, I want to advise you that the incidents discussed in this episode are real and traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. episode of the muscle room podcast we are here at the douglaston country club which is beautiful and robin you are a member here thank you for helping set this up and a huge shout out to the the country club for being a a gracious host and allowing us to do this um you told them what it was all about and they said absolutely come on in use our space because they thought they know how important this discussion is so shout out to them Absolutely. Very grateful to the Douglaston Club, to Henry, to Susan, to everyone here that's helped us and has donated the space today. They've been fantastic. And the nice, beautiful spread of, of food that they gave us, it was beyond gracious and we, we, we appreciate it. And today we are joined by Robin Canariato. You were a, uh, a police officer, probation officer, a clinician, not in that specific order, and a soon-to-be MD medical doctor. Yes, Austin. I'm right? soon to be a medical doctor. Yes. Um, it <laughs> seems like you have a lot of time on your hands. So what's next? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty impressive uh, display of intelligence, first and foremost. Thank you. To be able to do uh, really four different uh, jobs, and you've done it in the span of you've had like four many careers in one life. <laughs> yeah, which Talk. is which is pretty crazy. And I know a lot of it is is because of Talk to Me post tour, and that stems from your time as a police officer and a probation officer. So let's talk about your career just on the law enforcement side first, and then we'll get into why you transitioned more into the clinical side of, of the mental health field for law enforcement. And then, of course, we'll, we'll talk mainly about TTMPT and, and how you developed it and how others can benefit from it. Thank you. So I am a clinical social worker. I was a New York City probation officer and I really did love that job in that it allowed me to understand people and why they had the life happenings that they did. Um, It provided an ability to try to rehab them um, while monitoring them on probation. But as I worked as a probation officer, you know, you spend time in court and you come to see uh, police officers and you come to better understand um, what they do. Um, and it brought me back to childhood when growing up, you know, uh, there was a cop on the beat. I grew up in Astoria, Queens, and the cops on the beat were always so friendly and, um, they partook in really the lives of people in the communities. They knew uh, people's names. They were social, they were courteous, they were respectful and, they really taught people um, what a cop did and what being a cop was about. And I remember at a young age thinking, one day I want to be a police officer. So um, my journey was such that, you know, I went to college, I studied uh, social work, then I studied clinical social work. I had both a bachelor's and a master's in social work. And um, I became a New York City probation officer while I was going to school. And um, I cherished my job as a probation officer, but always had the thought that I'd want to be a police officer. And I even had um, a probation officer uh, student, if you will, that was assigned. And he left before me to become a police officer. Um, his name was Joe, and I do keep in touch with him. Um, but becoming a, a probation officer was the first part of my journey in law enforcement. And subsequently, I became a New York City police officer. And when I did, I became, you know, the cop on the beat, if you will, at some point. Um, 
and it was really a great thing to work in a neighborhood and, and be part of it. And what know. year was that? Oh my gosh. So I became a police officer in 1986. Okay. Um, and you know, back then there weren't many women, there were some women. Um, and we, you know, we were able to pretty much, um, choose our jobs to some degree if we had an education. So I spent some time on patrol, but, um, at some point, uh, I went into a unit that I was interested in um, becoming a part of, which was the early warning unit, where they wound up really giving consequences to cops who had um, displayed uh, problems. And, you know, when I went into that unit, um, I remember reading through folders and uh, being interested in why cops had put themselves in the predicaments that they had, you know, uh, why they were being looked at for disciplinary consideration. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, these guys have problems, you know, uh, they're not disciplinary problems. There's something else going on. And so myself and a couple of colleagues, um, uh, Mike Perugia and Chris Hetherington were able to take a look at these, um, officers and make a case for them to be brought in and, considered, um, you know, for being made help available to them so that, you know, we would say to them, oh, you know, do you have trouble with your kids? Do you have trouble drinking? Do you have some, something going on? You know, you have an outrageous, um, uh, you know, force, uh, um, complaint history, you have a CCRB history, you have other problems here. You've lost equipment. How is all this possible? And, we realized very early that there had to be a way to get them to open up. Um, and we implemented something called a line organization referral so that how they came to us for help um, became significant. So if they came in and said, you know, although I've got all that going on, my union rep said I should come here and talk or, you know, um, fraternal groups that I should come and talk, and then it was off the record. And there would not be any disciplinary um, reaction to them. Instead, whatever their problem was, we were allowed to address, you know, with few exceptions, obviously. You know, if they were um, homicidal, immediately suicidal, imminently suicidal, or um, if they were going to, you know, have child abuse allegations, for example. Anything else we were pretty much able to deal with except for drug, you know, illegal drug problems. And... In a short time, in about three months, we launched a campaign and um, almost 900 cops came forward for help. It was kind of outrageous um, in terms of, you know, how many people were able to offer help to. It was very rewarding. Um, the unit grew. There became a significant peer uh, group that we worked with and we went out to commands and um, we kind of told them, you know, if not for yourself, for your partner come, you know, contact us. Let us tell you what we could offer. Let us tell you how we can help. It's you who will help yourself or you who will help your partner. Um, but there was a great re response to our efforts. And the suicide rate declined in the NYPD during the time we did the outreach. Um, it significantly declined. So it was very rewarding work. And you did it up until, was that 93? Yeah. Said? Yeah, up until 93. I mean, the guys remained and they went on to continue to do the work. I left in 93. Um, but uh, subsequently, I wound up working um, in an organization called Cop Care. It was an acronym for Children of Police Counseling Advocacies, Referrals and Education. And um, that organization was housed in the PBA office. Um, we had some space donated in Melville, and um, it was originally started to help the cops, uh, kids um, who were survivors of their parents' suicide. Um, so uh, it was a much needed organization, you know, where these families that were affected by police suicide were serviced. Um, yeah. And then, so 93, you, you leave, then you end up going to cop care for years. Yes. And then how, how did you, uh, mold that all into creating talk to me? Post so then I went into private practice. Um, I worked a lot with law enforcement officers and military guys. It was really my scope of interest. Um, and I don't know, you know, one day, uh, I realized something I was watching 
a series of police shootings that had taken place um, in a short amount of time. And I remember rewinding uh, the footage and looking at um, the physiological changes in the officers and thinking um, it looks like some of them have PTSD and, you know, what exists for cops once they leave work, you know, um, I mean, the, you know, back then they went to um, watering holes, bars, or um, they hung out together and they, you know, they talked about things, but not really about the work they had done. Uh, so there was really no method to rewind a roll call and to really um, heal uh, from some of the things that they were exposed to. So I called up Mike uh, Perugia and Chris Hetherington and I said, you know, I have an idea um, you know, we should go out to precinct houses and we should help cops understand that, you know, they need help and um, uh, we should make this service available. Uh, we've got to create a program where they could come together and they could have camaraderie help them as peers and groups. And uh, and then we started to talk about it and I started to think, you know, it's got to be maybe a virtual program. So Mike Perugia had said, you know, they're using FaceTime a lot. But FaceTime wouldn't have been anonymous, so we hired a developer who um, was able to translate the idea uh, with us into, um, you know, a virtual program. And then I thought about, well, you know, it's got to be broader than this. It has to have um, anonymity and um, security. And then uh, we looked at the um, possibility of artificial intelligence helping uh, put the cops into specific groups so that it would be more peer-oriented in terms of them specifically sharing concerns and helping each other in a more definite way. Um, you know, the, the FBI recently published some uh, research that said that uh, peer counseling is more effective than professional counseling. And having taken the life journey that I have, I would have to tell you that for law enforcement, I believe that is true. Although sometimes you do need professional counselors and, um, you know, that will always be available. But but peer-to-peer -peer provides something that um, professional counseling doesn't. You know, we've walked in each other's shoes and we've seen the same things that, you know, people can't really understand unless they go through policing and um, have the experiences. Yeah. So when people are in this program, when they go through um, this questionnaire, this intake process that that you've helped develop, basically what the what the computer and the AI is doing is basically taking these officers um, and sorting them into groups of other officers that could best help them. So that they're so, talking. Well, so it's like in kind. So we've got extensive training that our peer facilitators go through, right? I should back up and say that to you first, that um, the program is structured so that peer facilitators are trained um, so that they could help the officers move the group forward and help them share um, their concerns and their experiences so that what one officer does to survive something he may share and another officer may learn from that. Or where one officer is stuck and can't move, another may help them understand how they moved. So the whole process of peer-to-peer -peer is that you understand because you've had these experiences um, that are similar. And just to be clear, the facilitator is also someone who is law enforcement. Oh, yes. Only law enforcement. Even either active or retired, but nonetheless, they are um, law enforcement. And we also train them about the um, uh, the technology that's involved in our program. So they understand how to come into the group and how to uh, use the, how to have the anonymity um, absolute. Um, and there's some security uh, attached to our group too. Although we've got it suspended temporarily, um, there are security credentials that one needs to come in ordinarily to our groups. To assure that they're law enforcement? Yeah, to ensure that they're law enforcement. But on a podcast like this, it's going out to law enforcement. So <clears throat> Mainly we know, law enforcement, yes. You know, we know law enforcement will come into the Yeah, it, we, we also have uh, other first responders, fire, EMS. Mm -hmm. Now, for right now, TTMPT, just to be clear, is only for law enforcement at this current time. At this time, however... 
through the pandemic, um, it became apparent that um, all uh, first responders needed support. Um, you know, in my clinical practice, I heard from physicians that were, you know, they, they didn't sign up to work on MASH units. They were working in hospitals or just about to finish medical school, and they wound up on really uh, on the cusp of a war, if you will, you know, with COVID, where they were seeing bodies on trucks and uh, fluids from the bodies, um, you know, uh, displaced in the streets and patients dying at a quick rate. Um, so they really weren't equipped or prepared to deal with that. Not, not the doc, neither the doctors nor the nurses or the paramedics or, and you know, and on and on. So we did make, um, talk to me post tour available for all first responders throughout the pandemic. And, you know, uh, we're self-funded and it's very difficult for us to do so because, Although we volunteer, we do pay the tech guys and the, we pay for the tech licenses and the tech support and for the person who helps us schedule everything. Um, anyway, so it's been a long journey from that perspective. So hopefully eventually down the line, if all goes well, you get more sponsorships and you, and you get uh, you know, corporate donors. We hope so, yes. Eventually this will be available for all first responders. Oh, yes. And, and, and also we could extend it and make it broader to law enforcement offices. So we just run a couple of groups a day now. Um, we'd like to run more and make it uh, more available and more accessible. Um, even the credential cost, uh, cards have a cost attached to them. So we do have to figure out how to get some funding in. Yeah. So let, let's paint a, a broader picture for those uh, who are interested in actually joining Talk To Me Post. Oh, yes. We hope to find more that are interested. Always so make it available. The way it works, and correct me if I'm wrong, they are able to access a website yes. and create or log in on an anonymous username. Yes an anonymous email, et cetera. Uh They then enter essentially a virtual chat room where they could communicate with other officers and a peer counselor who's also either active or retired law enforcement. And they can decide whether or not they want to communicate, whether it be via a text message or voice. Yes. And the group helps one another discuss critical incidences that they've dealt with or other PTSD or other mental yeah, issues or, or even, even problems that they face when they go home right. to their family. Because, you know, the one difference um, and, that- And real, real quick, the, 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 the boards that they're on, the, the chat rooms, these, it's not just that they're logging in and they just pick which one they're going into. This is after they're, they're sorted into the one that will best yeah, when, aid when them. It's, when it's running that way, Yes. Otherwise, they're going into one general group and talking about their concerns. Yes. So it's still really in development. There's, this is still an ongoing. Oh, it's, it's not in development. Well, I mean, it's not it's in development, but, but the AI feature. Uh, no, it's it's avail it's um it's available. But the broader the groups become, mm-hmm. the more available. Um, the different groups will be. And then the AI picks up on who should be in what group following that. Yes. Okay, now I understand a little bit better. Yeah. Gotcha. So so now there's just a couple of groups daily. So there's not they're not answering the AI questions. Mm-hmm. But as we have more groups available, the AI is there and they will answer the questions and go into specific groups. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we actually um post tour processing uh took a journey. It went across the nation to approximately 80 departments and we provided it to those departments. Um, we couldn't leave it, you know, and make it available for all those departments. As I said, we're self-funded, but it had really great responses. Um, as we did so, we received some wonderful testimonials and um, in some instances, officers said that it was life-saving for them. I'm sure it was. So it was really rewarding. We've been talking all day to other interviewees and every single one has said time and time again that peer support is so important. And as you said earlier, the FBI even said it's potentially more important than even clinical work. Yes. It's yeah. uh, it's unbelievable. And I, I myself, I went through somewhat of a small little peer support um, group at one point. Uh, when I was in college uh, with SUNY Cortland, I was the chief of EMS there. Uh-huh. Um, and I went through all the ranks and, uh, back in 2012, I was the captain at the time. Um, the Susquehanna river flooded 
in Binghamton. And we mutualated from SUNY Cortland to Binghamton University that also had a student-run EMS agency. And we were down there for a few days helping with the rescue and recovery efforts. And then we went down again multiple times. It was very challenging, especially as a college student. But then we started going down again more on the side of um, uh, volunteering with uh, groups to help with the cleanup efforts. And we had brought one of our advisors down there with us, Mike Holland. Uh, He was an older man, very big, tall guy. He was like a father figure to us and he spent hours and hours of uh, cleanup. In uh-huh. And unfortunately, on the way back while driving one of the vans of ours, he ended up having a heart attack, oh going like 60 miles an hour, slamming into a tree. And the van was full of students, um, our other EMTs. Thank God nobody else had a single scratch on them. But Mike, unfortunately, passed away. And uh, we all witnessed it. Um, We were following behind in in the ambulance. This must have been such an image for you. Yeah, especially being only 18 years old, 19 years old, and uh, a lot of our members also being very young and witnessing somebody who was a father figure to us die on the side of the interstate on I-81. And we're doing CPR on him until other rescue teams showed up and eventually Mm -hmm. go to the hospital. And uh, afterwards... Thankfully, Marley Bardoon, who was another advisor of ours, she's on the FBI's um, critical, what are they called? The critical response team, uh-huh. uh, which is essentially what, what you're talking about. It's a peer support group. And uh, she came down and we did a whole peer support discussion for days afterwards. And it, I think it personally helped many of us. Some, unfortunately, it, it didn't. And t- till this day, they still have some PTSD from the incident. But uh, so I know a little bit about peer support. Um, yeah. But that's the only actual peer support that I've personally been involved with. Uh-huh. Well, thank goodness she was able to come down and do that because something yeah. like that, even people who still have some PTSD from it would have had significantly more perhaps because without that type of intervention, there's an awful lot that's stored. Yeah. 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 We all, we all sat around the room and we all told our, our own stories about Mike personally. Mm-hmm. And then we told stories about the actual incident and what we remembered. Uh, and it actually, I think it helped because I only saw part of the incident from my perspective, but there were other things going on. Cause you know, in an incident, many of us as first responders, we get tunnel vision and we see the issue and we address the issue when there could be so many other things going on in a peripheral that we're not even aware of. of. Course. So I was able to connect the dots and it didn't leave me guessing because I know that w- there were others on scene a few seconds before I was, but I mean, CPR was started immediately. So the thought of my process of, well, if we could have got there quicker or if X, Y, and Z. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. because we were, I was able to piece the dots together because we were, we did that peer support group and everyone had their own it stories. Helps you understand. Yeah. It helped me understand the yeah. full story, which I thought was, was really helpful so to me. Important. Yeah. So important. I, I want to echo that too, that the critical incident stress debriefings, they're really important. Um, in 20, 14 or 2015 this is like maybe a month after i got my emt card um we got mutilated from my volunteer department I'm, I'm 18 at the time just got my emt card and we got mutilated a town over for um a motor vehicle accident for an extra ambulance we get there and it was a head-on collision there was some teens that were drag racing and one car is going the wrong way down the road and an SUV, an Escalade, they were like a Corolla. An Escalade pulls out, head on with the Escalade. Escalade versus Corolla. Corolla is not winning. There was five kids in the car, oh. all teenagers from the high school. Two, three of them were ejected. No one had seatbelts on. Three of them were dead on the scene, and two of them died within the hour at the hospital. And I remember from that incident, like when you when you're involved in something crazy like this. I feel like sometimes it goes in slow motion, how you remember oh, it. That's how trauma is seen. It's like, you know, very slow motion. Like yeah. I personally remember one of my, one of my friends from the department, Matt, putting a white sheet over the first person. Like, okay, one person's dead. White sheet over another person. Another person's dead. Okay, there's two people dead. Third person. Like, geez. And after that incident, when we got back to the firehouse, they wouldn't let us leave. They put us in a room like, no, you guys got to stay here. Um, They brought in someone from the police department to talk with us. One of the investigators had to talk with us, obviously. And then um, they had us all talk about what happened. And it was one of those where at the time, like, oh, I mean, what happens happens. I mean, it sucks. But now thinking back on it over the past couple of years, it made a big difference to be able to talk about it right then and there and not just live with that. Right. 
and even afterwards, um, when younger people came in after me, when you're in a volunteer fire department, they don't tell you when you first join, you're going to see some crazy stuff. Like that's not really something they talk about. But then you're a kid fresh out of high school or in high school and you're seeing people dead, maimed, crazy things. And I saw in a couple um, kids when they first joined, like after like a shell shocked look after something, when they were just like blank. And I would make sure I talked to them afterwards because I know how much it aided me after a call like that. So I made sure I was trying to be there for them after something like that. Hopefully it helped them. It's so important because without that, you know, they go home feeling like they're they're in isolation with these ghosts and these, you know, visions in their head that they just can't get out, you know. At least you validate that they're able to talk about it. You help them understand what your experience was like and you had the same feelings as them and they're not foreign with foreign visitors, you know. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I tried to get stress to them is that mm-hmm. as first responders, a lot of times we have gallows humor. And after something happens, we'll make jokes about it. Right. And for people that are new to the profession, new into that kind of culture, it's kind of like, oh, this must not affect these people. But no, it still does. Of course. And just and if it doesn't, we should be really concerned. A hundred percent. Being able to admit that to someone like, hey, this does affect me. It's not just saying it for you. It's also helping that other person realize. Exactly. Like as police officers, we all, like we're all these alphas, like when we're at work, like it has to be this way. You're, you were the law when you're out there. But then after shift, sometimes those things still affect you. So, so that's a great point. And that's a piece that I don't think is addressed by professionals so that, You know, if you think about um, PTSD, right, or acute stress that's accumulated, um, law enforcement officers go to work every day and they take off their costume and they go back home and then their, um, you know, then their spouse, their parents, their friends, their whatever else they are, teammate, but they carry with them all of the stuff that they saw at work. So they become the slightly more paranoid, protective parent. They become the um, a slightly stressed spouse. You know, they may drink a little bit to get rid of the stress or they may, um, you know, bury themselves in uh, television or do whatever they do to escape it. Um, but it's a constant recycling of being reintegrated, right? So and, they disintegrate, they reintegrate. And they you have to have that self-awareness when you get off of work. Yeah. Um, like when you go home, like I, when I go home, my fiance, she wants to talk to me about her day, about the things that were crazy with her day. Yeah. And most of the time, it sometimes doesn't, like when you think about the life and death nature of what we do as first responders- mm-hmm. A bad day for us and a bad day for civilians are very different things. You run towards everything the civilian runs away from. Right? So sometimes so it's, it's difficult as first yeah. responders. You have to have that self-awareness when you go home, mm-hmm. like when your spouse or your kids talk about how bad their day was. And you're right. thinking back in your head like, damn, I just saw this, this, and this at work today. I had to do this, this, this. I had to fight this guy, this guy, this guy. And then at home, your, your significant other is like, oh. You know, that meeting ran really long. It's like right. <laughs> sometimes you have to have that self-awareness that what other people are going through also is significant. To them. It matters to them. Of course. It's different than what you're going through, but it's still significant to them. And having that self-awareness, I think, is important for law enforcement but, officers. But what's interesting is that you could relate to and understand what they go through on some level, right? Mm-hmm. But does every cop share what they see at work with their with their support system outside of their police family? No, because how many people could relate to what they've experienced, you know? And also how do you protect your family and significant others? You don't share with them what you do at work because you don't want them to worry about you. And you don't want them to understand that, you know, you took body parts out of a refrigerator or you, you know, um, you saw a, a fatal car accident or you saw you know, child abuse that they couldn't imagine in a lifetime or, you know, whatever it is that you respond to, whether it's a victim or property crime, uh, do you want them to really understand what your day is comprised of? Probably not because 
what would that be like for them, right? It would be vicarious trauma in some regard. Um, so the cop who protects everyone, particularly protects those they love by not sharing what they go through, and therefore their support is limited. It's really back into the police family again, you know? So there have to be outlets and methods and programs where they constructively could support each other. Um, Otherwise, you know, we'll have more tragic outcomes in the future, you know, without programs that are sophisticated and that adapt with current times. I think this has already been answered, but from the medical standpoint, why is peer support so important compared to all the other uh, outlets out there? So uh, what other outlets are out there? So whether we talk about, um, you know, counseling or we talk about medications or we talk about uh, treatment facilities. I mean, you know, there are some applicable uh, treatments available for people that would benefit from them. And PTP is not a replacement to um, professional services for offices that need professional services because as we developed it, we implemented the chat box so that there could be a private communication between the peer facilitator who operates the chat box and the officer who needs more than the group is providing them with. And, you know, by means of a private message, we could say, you know, either call this place or that place or call our number so that we could get a clinician on call to speak with you and screen you and refer you to places that would be helpful, which we've done. Um, we've had offices come in that wound up going away to rehabs for PTSD, uh, you know, for alcoholism, for whatever it was that they needed to be sent for. So just to be clear, for those that are going to use TTMPT, yeah. and we'll talk about the, the departments that are currently using it, the facilitator has the ability to reach out to them Anonymously, yeah, through so it's the chat all box. Anonymous. The whole thing is, we have people that come in. Um, we have no, we can't see the peer that's in there participating in the group. You can only see the peer facilitator, mm-hmm. one of them who's facilitating the group, not even the one who's facilitating the chat box. But um, we've had people come in even using voice modulators because you know, cops the cops, and yeah. you say it's anonymous and it's right, untraceable. Right. They just come in and they add a layer. Good for them, yeah, yeah. you know, because they're able to talk freely about right. whatever they want. And then this, so that facilitator has the ability to reach out to them because they could pick up that this person may need more help than just this peer it's part support. Of the training, right? And then they're, they'll say, okay, hey, listen, this is what I think you should do. This is who I think you should contact for additional help. Yes. That's that's yes, a fantastic feature. Options. Thank you. Now, this uh, the the organization right now it's a it's a nonprofit. Is that correct? We are a nonprofit. You're a nonprofit, yes. and currently, if I'm not mistaken, there's three departments that are that are using this. No, so we we don't know where the offices come from. Mm-hmm. Some offices may be lingering from when we took it across the nation. Right. We have handed out credentials to NYPD officers. We've been out there lecturing and talking about it, going to uh, line and fraternal organization events. Um, and we're very grateful to Paul DiGiacomo, the uh, president of the Detectives Endowment Association in New York City, because Paul actually put PTP be t- behind his firewall and made it part of the uh, screen so that when active or retired detectives come in, they could access PTP and come into sessions. That's great. Now, I thought when we were talking offline, I thought you said that the NYPD, Nassau, and Suffolk were the three departments so that were- we are hoping that NYPD, Nassau, and Suffolk offices come and use the services. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are uh, doing outreach and um, talking about PTP and meeting with departments and telling them, you know, come let the offices come in and use this. Yes, absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, can currently can anyone from across the country can go on the website and start using the, uh, oh, yes. the features? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yep. Now, for the organization to expand, I'm assuming you need funding. Oh, we do need funding, yes. So if there are corporations out there that are watching this right now or listening to this, how oh, can they- be- 
How can they support? Um, So they could go to our website um, and they would see ttmpt.com is the website. Um, They could send an email. We would respond to them. Um, They could contact us. Um, They could call directly. Uh, I could give my number, which is 516-480-3579, or they could contact either of you, I would hope, as you're on the law enforcement board, and they could reach out and ask um, how they could help. Yeah. We'd be very grateful for corporate sponsorship. And just to reiterate for officers out there listening, when you go to the website and you want to become part of this, when you apply, um, you guys are verifying through some kind of process, they're law enforcement officers or whatnot. Well, so with suspended credentials, um, it's like on the honor system mm-hmm. and only we're only targeting law enforcement uh, agencies, um, fraternal and um, line organizations, departments, uh, and podcasts, for example, that deal with law enforcement. Um, when security is in use, they could only come in with credential cards that go hand to hand. So those cards are handed out um, to officers uh, in person. We've had guys turn out roll calls and we've gone to um, some events where we've given out cards uh, to NYPD officers Um so our goal is to put one, a credential card in the hands of every law enforcement officer. And that credential is unique to that officer. Only they know what their number is. And, and when you say credential card, when, yeah. they're, when they're logging in, when this is eventually re-put in place, it's not their law enforcement credentials. They're, they're, it's not no. like ID me. It's they're like a, a oh, unique no. card, which is a number that, that identifies. That they scratch off and only they know they're, that's a lifetime access credential. Yes. And so you don't even know who they are. No, I have no idea right. of knowing who they are. It's Nobody. just the computer just, just recognizes that that code means that that person's a cop from anywhere in the country and they're a able to random access. number that yeah. randomly was given to that officer. Correct. And a lot of times officers are very big on, they think, how can this be used against me? I, I, are you going to talk to my department? So basically how you have this set this up. This is the only anonymous program that exists because unlike other programs where you could see the person, you know, the, the in-person programs, thank God there will never be enough of those either. But this is the only anonymous program because you can't see the person. They come in in such a way that you have no way of knowing who they are. You could not go back to figure it out. So, um, yeah, it's completely anonymous. And that sets you apart from any other any other program, program in the country? Yes. Have you been approached by any any companies to or, or departments to, that said, "Hey, we want to we want to get this fully on board with with our department"? Or, um, so there are a couple of departments we're talking to right now, where um, I was just asked if I would uh, testify before a public safety committee um, uh, to make it available. On a larger scale, we're waiting to hear back and know when when that will take place. But yes, departments do have interest because they say that if this could save one officer, it's worth it. Absolutely. Um, Who could disagree with that? I mean, people sign up to protect and serve, right? And nobody protects and serves them. So um, the effort of this program is to prevent an officer from taking their life, prevent an officer from having alcohol abuse or from having domestic violence or any of the other stressful life events that come from um, the accumulation of stress that police uh, experience. Okay. Now I know that uh, on your phone, you have a step-by-step process on how they can access. So if you want me to read it for you. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you, Austin. So so for those of you that are interested in uh, getting involved with uh, Talk To Me Post Tour, uh, this is the way you go about doing it. If you, whether or not you're, you think you're experiencing any type of PTSD or suicidal ideations, or just need someone to talk with, uh, this is the way you go about doing it. So, um, any part, part, excuse me, potential participants uh, to access the trained peer facilitated meetings by logging into www.ttmpt.com and they click on the meetings link. Yes. Or you can just go to ttmp.com slash meetings. Perfect. And then from there, you're going to click login with a blank username and a blank password, meaning you just hit enter, right? 
You, mm-hmm. you don't have to type in a username. You don't have to type well, in. You can type in a pseudoname. You can pseudo, type anything. In, you, right. can t- you can type in Yankees fan one, two, three. Exactly. Right. And, uh, or you can type in whatever you'd like and then you hit enter and, and boom, essentially you're now in, in the, the chat mm-hmm. room. Um, and then you're going to go to the date and the session desired. So let's say if it's right now, it's four 30 in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you want to join the four 30 session. You click that session yes. and you're able to join. Now, can you also schedule yourself for a later session? Is that a possibility? You come back into another session. Okay. And then is, is there a, there's a calendar on there with, yes. with the upcoming dates and times? Yes. That's great. Um, so then, yeah, you click join meeting and then again, you're in completely anonymously. Mm-hmm. Nothing in there is going to tell anybody who you are no. or what department you're with. And, uh, and that's it. I mean, it's it's super simple, right? Yes. There's there's really there's no gimmick behind it. There's, there's no gimmick. That's we'll, it. We volunteer, um, and you know, all all of us are either active or retired officers, and um, our goal is just to help the next officer out there who might need help or support, um, or to help somebody who knows an officer who needs help or support. So even if they come in and they want to understand the process to tell somebody else about it, it would be beneficial. So I want everyone to do this. All of our listeners or those who are watching on, on YouTube, even if you don't think that you need this, I want you just to go to ttmp.com and sit in on a meeting. Perfect. Just watch. You don't have to do anything else. Just no, we hope they'll talk. Well, we hope right, they'll share I'm, something. Right, but I want Somebody them to might at least, learn something. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So I, I want them to at yeah. least just to go into the meeting and watch. And if you want to participate, awesome. by all means. Awesome. If you don't, you don't have to. But at least at the bare minimum, go into a meeting for one session and just check it out. Perfect. And who knows? You may find yourself saying, I actually need this or I want to participate. Because you're not going to know unless you actually try. You know, you could think of it as a mental gym, if you will, you know. Um, So, you know, we hope that cops are going to the gym and taking care of themselves and, um, you know, keeping themselves in order so that they don't wind up exercising the heart bill. Um, This is really a preventive program so that if they come in there and they find support in being with each other, um, mentally it would be well um, intended for them because uh, the other support systems that they have that are not law enforcement really can't relate the same way to what they experience. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's, oh gosh, it's so needed. I, 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 don't, I can't understand how this hasn't happened sooner. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yes, I mean, I agree with you. I, <laughs> um, especially in today's day and age of technology, and again, we we keep hitting upon the, the stigma of 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 reaching out and peer support, and and then the negative side effects that come with with or what used to at least come with saying that I need help mm-hmm. or I think so and so need help. Uh, that's actually another question I got for you. Can somebody join anonymously and ask in the group to help a fellow officer that that they may know that Absolutely. needs help? Absolutely, they could ask for pointers or ideas or. Our resources, referrals. Well, there yes. you go. So then, none of us have a, a, no reason not to join because at least go into a, into a meeting and find out what you can do to potentially help another officer. Awesome. I think we all know at least somebody that that you could think in the back of your head going, you know what, that guy or gal who I work with may need some help. When I was a young cop, um, you know, I was assigned to a Manhattan precinct, and I had a fill-in partner, and I worked with her, and. Um, she had a lot of uh, stress uh, on a particular day. She had stress in general, but I remember thinking, you know, um, she seems particularly stressed today. And I talked to her about it, you know, and said, oh, you know, you've got to take care of yourself. And is there anything I could do to help? Or, um, you know, you should consider talking to somebody. And uh, she never came back to work. She wound up crashing her car. And, you know, so many times law enforcement officers have accidents that uh, we know are not accidents. You know, we know that um, perhaps they commit suicide. Um, but uh, that was a life-changing event for me in that um, I became consumed with, you know, guilt about what else could have been available to her and uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I had gone on um, uh, a journey, um, lifelong journey, you know, with um, becoming a therapist and then going into the early intervention unit, you know, at some point in policing. But um, 
I think, you know, although I interviewed for many different jobs in the NYPD, um, the reason I chose the unit I went to was because I really thought, you know, maybe there was some way to make a difference um, and to possibly participate in um, uh, developing something in the NYPD. It was a wish at the time, but it became a reality. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, it was propelled by this life experience, but um, it was a learning curve in that, um, you know, if programs had been accessible and they had been available, maybe um, that officer and then the offices that I learned about and uh, wound up, um, you know, um, doing the forensic autopsies with the uh, coworkers that I had, um, maybe those officers' lives could have been saved if there were a saturation of programs that were available to them. And I think that's key that, you know, maybe the departmental resources work for some officers, maybe the union resources work for some officers, maybe the virtual resource works for officers and you know, maybe professional counseling works for offices, but whatever it is, it should all be available to them because the job is a very stressful job. And, you know, um, in grad school, when I went, they used the um, a TV show, which most of you may not be familiar with, but it was called MASH. And the character, uh, Alan Alda, Hawkeye, you know, he was this MASH doctor who used humor, sarcastic humor, to cope with all the stress. And that's what cops do. You know, um, you made reference to it before, Joe, but they make, you know, they talk about things humorously to survive them. But subsequently, these things wear on you and they're part of, you know, they're part of your psyche. Um, so two things quick. I've worked with Alan Alda. He's actually a professor oh, at Stony Brook. And he's, oh, amazing. Um, he runs the Alan Alda Center for Scientific uh, Communications. Wow. So his whole thing is uh, teaching uh, scientists and medical professionals how to effectively communicate. Because if you can't communicate oh, a awesome. great idea or a great development oh. or get your concept across, it's never going to go anywhere. So he's fantastic. Oh, I'd love um, to meet him. <laughs> I want to contact Stony Brook. <laughs> yeah, he's he's fantastic. The whole Alan Alda Center at Stony Brook is fantastic. Wow. Um, but I also wanted to mention, like, I think there's no one magic bullet. Um, this program is fantastic. It might not work for everybody. Thank you. The same thing with talk therapy. It might be great for some, not others. I exactly. think having a saturation of different programs and different um, ideas and it gives officers variety and the ability to choose something that works for them. No I know question. with law enforcement officers weekend, one of the side effects, the good side effects of our weekends is when we bring families together and we bring injured officers together, it, it creates bonds between them that they can talk to Lifelong each other. Bonds. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. We spoke on a previous episode. So again, pulling back the veil, this is actually the fifth episode we've shot today. So this episode is going to be before the other ones. So when I say before, it's actually, you're going to hear this later for the people in the audience. Um, but when we spoke, we spoke about an officer, Paul Lewis. Um, we hosted him at the same time as officer Jesse Hartnett from Philadelphia, who w was critically shot multiple times in a terrorist attack. Mm. Paulie was shot during a domestic dispute. They live hundreds of miles from each other, never would have met before. Meeting at Leo Weekend, they, they've become friends. Um, all of our officers have become friends with each other, being able to bounce things off each other, talk to each other about their experiences. So in a way, kind of what we do at Leo Weekend too, it's doing that peer-to-peer -peer between critically injured officers and it's more a subsect of officers probably, but it, it just shows the effectiveness of the approach. And Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, if you could deal with officers who are the heroes amongst heroes, I mean, the ones who go out there and are injured and experience what we've not yet experienced to date, thank God. Hopefully um, what none of not, us will experience. Right, I retired, so, but what you hopefully will never experience, you two young, wonderful officers. Um, you know, those officers have a bond that's even different than the bond that 
offices have in general. Um, I think the biggest honor of my life to date professionally was um, winning the Police Self Support Group's um, Humanitarian Award back in 19, uh, I think it was 90, 1995 or 93 that I won that award. It was a long time ago, but that was a really significant um you know, heartstring uh, for me. I, I think Austin could speak to this a little more than I can because Austin, through Leo Weekend, deals with the families and officers a lot more than some of our other board members do, myself included. Um, when you reach out to officers, Austin, a lot of times, especially the injured ones, they might be the first seriously injured officer in an apartment's modern history, and they don't really know resources for them or other officers they can talk to and bounce things off of. And the NYPD, it's sort of an unfortunate advantage of how big we are, is that when something happens to an officer, there's something that's probably happened to an officer similar to that in recent memory. So there's people they can speak to. Um, If you want to speak to that, Austin, at all about how these officers sometimes feel like they're alone, they don't have resources yeah, we get that all the time. So uh, typically when we deal with a family from the New York metropolitan area, so in New York, New Jersey, parts of Connecticut, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, of course, all of Long Island, we work with large departments where they have the uh, finances more than anything to support peer counseling uh, or Units that are there specifically to work with them after a major incident where they've been injured in the line of duty or, you know, for the families who've lost a loved one Mm -hmm. in the line of duty. But a lot of the times we focus on uh, officers or families that work in agencies that are in middle America that come from departments that have very little funding, maybe only 10 or 20 officers, sometimes even less that work for the department. So we're talking about minuscule departments yes. compared to the major departments here in the Northeast, which mm-hmm. are some of the largest in the world, or of course the NYPD being the largest in the world um, and Nassau and Suffolk, not too far behind. So when we are dealing with these officers, they can't even comprehend the amount of support that we have of course. here in the Northeast. Um I mentioned it in an earlier podcast, the thin blue line here in the Northeast, especially in New York City, especially the NYPD, the one thing that we do really well in the NYPD is support each other when there's a major incident Mm -hmm. or even families of officers from other departments. We take care of them. That's not seen in many other departments across the country. So these these officers come to Leo Weekend and it's a mind-blowing experience. That there are organizations like Leo Weekend, individuals like all of us, honestly, who take the time out of our own day to make sure that there's officers, that these officers are going to be supported. Mm -hmm. So when they come to New York, especially during our Long Beach weekend, which will be this coming July, we'll have five more new families. And they get to listening. This is after. The weekend has happened for those listening already. Right, you're right. So, so this past July <laughs> for for this episode, um, we've we had five officers and their families come, and they're from all across the the country. Uh, this year, it, it was Maine, Chicago, um, uh, Jersey, uh, Massachusetts. No, excuse me, New Hampshire, and uh, one from a federal agency. Mm-hmm. So across the country, and. We, we take them to places like the Empire State Building, Ground Zero, um, private surf lessons, fishing charters. Oh. We do stuff with the Mets and they get to throw out the opening pitch at one of the games. And it's so incredible to see how these officers from such the small departments get to experience it because it's nothing like they've ever seen before. Um, and some of them have even told us flat out and some of the families in particular have told us flat out that the weekend has in some way shape or form saved their lives Mm -hmm. because it's opened them up to other experiences that they would have never experienced before in particular being able to speak with other officers who've dealt with a critical incident similar to what they have and it also repurposes them where they can help each other that's exactly what happens Mm -hmm. actually with with so paulie lewis and and with jesse and a few of them are actually coming again This year, just specifically to talk to the new incoming officers. Mm -hmm. And we didn't think about that originally. It was actually Paulie's idea. And Paulie helped actually get this podcast off the ground. He was actually our first interviewee ever. And we'll probably interview him again in July. Um, His idea was to create a network of officers 
that have been seriously injured in the line of duty. And the same can go for officers that are, that are experiencing a mental, he calls it a mental injury. Mm-hmm. Um, PTSD is an injury. It's an injury, right. Uh-huh. Right. It's That's not an correct. illness. It's an injury because it, it could be, it could be fixed and typically it is fixed mm-hmm. um, or managed at least. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so his idea was to create this, this virtual family of officers to talk and communicate with one another. And there's nothing like that as far as we're aware, where officers can talk to officers and communicate with one another who've all experienced these traumatic events Mm -hmm. and to support one another and to bounce ideas off each other, especially again, for the small departments who don't have the support network that we have here in the New York city area, especially when it comes to finances. A lot of these departments, like we we spoke about off air, they don't have the three quarters benefits um, or their workman's comp is little to nothing. And they've been significantly injured in the line of duty. And now they don't have an income because they don't have the three quarter benefits. They don't have the workman's comp. So how do you now survive? So that's one of the other things that Paul, he's been focusing on is specifically uh, from his department in New Hampshire, because he was one of the only officers to ever be seriously injured in the line of duty in modern era in New Hampshire. There's been a few more since then. Fully, I'll keep you in my thoughts and prayers, but you're awesome. He's for a great guy. To help yeah. other offices out there. That's amazing. Yeah. So again, as you know, as Joe said, it's just, we, we, we understand where you're coming from and mm-hmm. we've, you know, we've had the ability now to, to work with, uh, over 63 families of, uh, officers That's that amazing. have been seriously injured or killed in the line of duty. And, and, and one of the, the, the things that I love most about our organization is, seeing the, the, the officers themselves living life again, but also seeing the families get to experience life again too. Yeah. So a lot of times we focus solely on just that officer that sometimes the families don't get thought of sometimes. And I remember who, who was it who said this is the first time they've really got to live again since their injury? Was it, was that, was that George Day's family who said this is the first time they really got to it was yeah. him? It, well, we've we've had that said multiple times now, but I believe it was George Day's family who said it first, mm-hmm. um, and then even Genesis Familia, who lost her mother in the line of duty mm-hmm. back in 2018, she said it was the first time that her and her siblings were able to to be children again. Her mom was killed the night of July 4th, technically July 5th, 2018, I believe it was 2017. 2017. I I hope my class holds the distinction of being the only. NYPD Academy class to be sworn in the same day as a line of duty death. Right. Okay. Yes. So that was 2017. We hosted her in 2018 in Lake George. And that was the first time in about a year that they were able to laugh and have fun and, and enjoy themselves as children because that innocence was stripped from them the, the, the second that their mother was killed. Um, so we get that all the time. And then we even had a, a family from the Port Authority. I won't name who it was. Um, whose son was was significantly injured in a uh, by a motor vehicle during a DWI investigation. Another car came around the bend in one of the tunnels and struck him going mm. at a significant rate of speed. How he didn't die is a miracle, but he had significant head trauma um, and other TBI. parts of his body. Yeah, uh-huh. he had a traumatic brain, uh-huh. brain injury. Uh-huh. And since that day, he really couldn't be in public crowds. He couldn't do public speaking. And he actually stood up at one of our events and he gave a whole speech and his mom oh. started crying. She said it was the first time that her son gave a, uh, a speech since the incident. He felt safe and purposeful. Yeah. And then yeah. since then, he's actually done it multiple times now. But it was because of our organization and, and that event that he, he had the ability to, to Rob, overcome. Rob, if you're okay with it, one of the things I'd like to I mean, I haven't talked to you guys about this at all. I think maybe this is one thing we can offer some of the families when they come to our events is give them the information about your organization, about the, and in, like, if they don't want to talk necessarily to us, because at our events, it's up to the families what they want to do. If they want to be, if they want to do everything with us, that's fantastic. If they don't want to do anything with us and just have an all expenses paid vacation, that's all good with us too. So maybe if we can give them the information, so maybe the anonymity for them can allow them to open up and talk about what they're going through. You're amazing, Joe, because I'm sitting here thinking that, you know, um, what you're doing with, by means of, you know, brick and mortar in person um, is so beautiful with these families. Um, you're offering them a very safe place where they could relate to each other and they could help each other and they form these bonds and they become so involved in the community of law enforcement. Um, but Sometimes people don't say publicly what they would say in a very safe space. Um, So I think that's awesome that you would share this. And so as we fund and as we grow, a couple of the things that we um, 
will have available are groups for family members, mm. um, groups for children, groups for surviving spouses, groups for surviving parents, um, you know, and a place where they could come and seek support and support each other safely and anonymously. So that's really, really keen in terms of understanding this. Yeah. Um, but, but we would schedule, if you're going to share this and announce it, we will schedule a family meeting on our calendar. So when you are about to do that, let us know and we will schedule an additional family meeting and how it works is if a group fills up, there are peers on call to open a second group right away. Great. So, you know, it just more groups will open. That's great. At the same time schedule. <clears throat> well, I'm I'm honored uh to have you as as a guest for, oh for, God, for this I'm podcast. Be, um Austin, thank you. We, we both have very similar uh missions. Uh different of course, but but still very similar and come when it boils down is just to help law enforcement and law enforcement families. Absolutely. I, you know, I went back to school to become a doctor. Um, someone once said to me, you know, you're not the be all end all expert. You're not an MD. <laughs> and I thought, you know, um, I'll show you, <laughs> I thought, you know, way back when, um, be a cop, be a doctor, be a cop, be a doctor, be a cop one at that time. But, um, and that thought was also reserved. Uh, I think that, you know, whether you become a cop or a physician, it's more of a calling in terms of what you're becoming. But yeah. I'll show you, you know. Yeah. So I did go back to school to become a medical doctor um, uh, with hopes to advocate for this population um, and uh, not be an expert, but be someone who's taken seriously, uh, perhaps an expert who could do justice to why, um, you know, programs that don't exist should, why funding for families should be available, um, for surviving families, for all the things that are not yet available to the population. Um, uh, others out there could be experts too, but I think that as the missions are defined and the needs are defined, um, perhaps there'll be some responsibility from whether it's politicians or congressional, um, you know, groups or whomever to meet the needs of this population who services everyone that's not serviced adequately themselves. Well, you'll, you'll be graduating this August, right? With I your, with your so. MD. You believe so. <laughs> well, knock on wood, right? If all, so. if all goes well, you'll Thanks. be graduating. So congratulations. That's Thank you, another amazing feat. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm sure there's a lot more to come from you and TTMPT. And I know I can speak for Joe. We're both honored that you even considered us to uh, to assist in any way that we can. Oh, so um, grateful to you. And like I said, when, when you asked to, to be on the podcast and bring some of your, your fellow members of TTMPT and some of the families that you know who have struggled with uh, suicide or for, from PTSD, it was a no-brainer. We said, absolutely, we, we'd love to have him. And again, I, I wish Eric was here. Uh, he's our, our co-host. I'm sure you'll, you'll meet him um, very soon. Uh, he himself struggled with with uh, suicide ideations back in the 90s and it, it really you know derailed his career um but it's it's such a passion of ours and that's why the three of us are sitting here right now because we're all doing this on our own time none of us are getting paid to do it but right. it, it's so important and again for those that are listening for those that are watching if you have the financial means to support this in some way if you are part of a, a company or an institution that has money to back things like this Please, please do um, reach out to Robin. We'll have your information on our Thank website you. or just go to ttmpt.com. You, you, you can contact them there. You can even contact them through us. And being that Joe and I are now a part of the law enforcement board, we'll be happy to, so great, to get them in contact with you. Of course, Joe and I will get a cut of that too, but oh, um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. None of us um, do. <laughs> yeah, none of us do. It's all, all paycheck free. No. Um, no. But no, seriously, th this has been an honor. Thank this, you. It's I an think honor to be this here. is probably one of the most important episodes that we've done because this has the ability truly to actually save someone's life, I believe. Thank you. A lot too. of the interviewees that we do, we always say it's important and they all are uh, respectfully. But this one actually has a tangible product behind it where they can actually right now if they want to. They could go to ttmp.com, finish the episode first, but then go to ttmp.com, log on and start receiving help. 
um, or get help for somebody else. We, we have an amazing law enforcement board. Um, you know, we have Phil, uh, Phil Shopman. He's um, a Suffolk County officer. He's active. He's the director of our peer training. Um, we have uh, Charles Lee Mohamedou. He's the warden in Suffolk. He's a psychiatric nurse practitioner also. Um, talk about amazing credentials. Um, we have Timothy Whitcomb. He's our, you know, law enforcement um, outreach, uh, law enforcement. He's really the conduit to most of the agencies and organizations um, that we've been in touch with. Um, uh, you know, I won't remember everybody in terms of we've got Jeannie Kelly, we've got Matt McCauley. Um, uh, well, you sent me Jim the list. Banish. It's a very There's impressive so board. Very you, impressive. Joe, it's, well, it's we, even more impressive now. Because right, you got Joe and I. It's, it's probably awesome. the most impressive, it's actually. Awesome. So, you know, you could just stop it there. You don't have to name anybody else. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, it goes on and on. But we've got some names in policing. Um, we're so lucky to have these names. And recently, we have... Um, this awesome board of directors um, that includes John Katzenmatidis and um, Jimmy O'Neill, the former commissioner from New York City. Um, heard of him? Yep. You've heard of him. Heard right? of him? Um, their reputations precede them. <laughs> Kevin Dwyer, uh, Billy Mulligan, Michael Pastinos, who owns the Capri Hotel in Southampton. He's hosting an event for us on the 27th of uh, June. Um, but it goes on and on in terms of how recently people have come forward and are trying to help us develop. So. We're grateful to any people out there in the business community, anybody that would support it or sponsor anything. We're most grateful to you. Um, you will help us uh, save an officer out there in need. I'm positive this is going to go far, without a doubt. This is, I mean, it, ha it has to. We don't have a choice. This this has to Thank go you, places. Austin. So, and anything else that Joe and I can do, we're we're, we're here to help. So grateful. Um, and again, for those of you that are listening, I'll say it one more time: ttmp.com. Sorry, ttmpt.com, excuse Perfect. me. Go to the website, find out information, log on if you need to, or even if you don't. And uh, any other questions, comments, concerns, feel free to reach out to us or Robin, and we'll be thank happy you. to answer for it. And this this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you, for, you for joining us. You're both us. awesome. So grateful to you. Thank, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It goes a long way to getting us discovered by more listeners just like you. If you'd like to leave a question or message that we can play on air, hit the record now button on our website. This show was hosted by Eric Potts and Austin Glickman and produced by me, Joseph Ryder. The Muster Room Podcast is a production of Law Enforcement Officers Weekend, a 501c3 nonprofit aiming to aid the families of killed and injured members of the law enforcement community nationwide. Be sure to follow us on social media at The Muster Room and at L-E-O underscore weekend. Visit us on our website at www.themusterroom.com for full transcripts, a video version of this episode, and all of our previous episodes. Until next time, have a great day and stay safe.